Well, we continue on through our sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel, looking at 1 Samuel 13, as we just heard read. I've entitled my sermon, Incapable and Inadequate. Now, as I begin this morning, I'd like to remind you of a few verses from last week's passage. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 through 15. Because I think they help us understand the main idea from today's passage. So here's what it said, 1 Samuel 12, 13 through 15. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now with that in mind, let me read through a summary of the timeline of events from the chapter we just heard read. Saul becomes king and reigns over Israel. Now I need to stop there just a minute because some of you, if you've been looking at your Bible, will say, what's going on here? Some of your Bibles will have different numbers than one and two. Some of your Bibles will be translated and they'll leave the numbers out of there. And that's because the earliest manuscripts, it's unclear. If you take it exactly the way the current ESV has it, then it says Saul became a king when he was one and he's reigned for two years. And so there's a little bit of an issue there. Now, if you take the biblical data about Saul that's throughout Scripture, it's probably best to think Saul's around 40 years old. But if if it has something different in your translation and you want to study that further, send me an email. I'll point you in the right direction on why it looks like that. The ESV, I appreciate it. It leaves it exactly the way they see it in the early manuscripts. But... We have to be able to deal with that. So let's, let's start again. Saul becomes king and reigns over Israel, and our minds are thinking he's probably about 40 years old. Saul chooses 3,000 men. This is the delta force of Israel, 2,000 with him and 1,000 with Jonathan. And then Jonathan defeats the garrison in Geba, and this looks good. Things are looking good. Saul proclaims the victory throughout Israel, but then the Philistines respond. The Philistines gather their forces. And as a result of the Philistines gathering their forces, the Israelites become fearful. They hide in caves. They hide in holes, in rocks, in tombs, in cisterns. Or if they don't hide, they flee. They leave the area. And so as he readies for battle, Saul waits. He waits for Samuel He's been instructed to wait for Samuel to prepare the troops for battle, but he doesn't think Samuel's coming. And so Saul offers burnt offering without Samuel being there. But Samuel does arrive, even as Saul finishes off with the uh, offering, the burnt offering. And so Samuel rebukes Saul for not obeying God's command. Samuel declares that Saul's kingdom will not continue And that God has chosen a different man, a man after his own heart, to be prince over his people. And Samuel leaves. Saul has about 600 men with him. 
We hear about the Philistines having so many men that they can break off into three raiding parties in order to prepare to attack. And then we get this last paragraph about how things are in Israel. There are no blacksmiths in Israel. Philistines are preventing them from having the ability to make weapons. In fact, if a farmer in Israel wants to sharpen a tool, he has to take it to the Philistines. And then it ends with this idea that on the day of battle, there are no swords, no spears, except for the ones that are owned by Saul and Jonathan. Now with chapter two and what God said would happen in mind and the events that we've covered in chapter three, I wanna suggest to you the main idea of this passage is this. Since we, as humans, are incapable of and inadequate for independent flourishing in life, we ought to trust and obey God. I'm gonna lay that out for you in the next 20 minutes or so. Point number one, Israel is incapable. Israel continues to demonstrate what they've demonstrated so far in the book of 1 Samuel, that apart from God's help, they are incapable of flourishing. To be incapable is to lack the necessary ability or qualification or strength to perform a specific task or to accomplish a specific function. And what Israel is demonstrating is they lack the wherewithal to flourish independent of God's help. Now, following this victory of Jonathan at the Philistine garrison in Geba, we read that Israel becomes a stench to the Philistines. And all of a sudden, that 3,000 men delta force that Saul has put together are going to be severely outnumbered. The Philistines muster a retaliatory battalion. And it consists of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore. Now, without judging the motivation of Israel in their response, and even if we assume good and godly motivations, it seems quite apparent that Israel is not capable of responding to the threat that faces them. We read, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgad and all the people followed him trembling. I think it's important to note as we consider this story developing that God did not choose Israel because of their impressive population. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. And so Israel wasn't chosen because of their numbers. They weren't chosen because they were numerous. And in fact, they had experienced in recent history victory. 
victory that God had given them when they were vastly outnumbered. Remember the story of Gideon? Gideon faced unbelievable odds. He was massively outnumbered. 300 against 135,000. And yet God gave them the victory. Israel knew what it was to be outnumbered. So that's not the problem here. And you might want to argue that the men of Israel at Gilgal responded in a reasonable manner considering the odds they were facing. But it really doesn't matter. The point is, they were incapable in and of themselves of flourishing. They found themselves in this situation where they're hiding in pits, hiding in tombs and caves or fleeing their home. We read that the people of Israel continued to desert Saul as the battle drew near. In verse eight, the people were scattering from him. And by the time we get to verse 15, there are only about 600 of 3,000 troops left with Saul and Jonathan. They're not flourishing, they're floundering. And the last five verses indicate how ill-equipped Israel is to deal with their circumstances. The Philistines had deprived the Israelites of weapons. And they deprived them of craftsmen who could make them weapons. If they had a weapon, the only way they could get it sharpened is by taking it to their enemies to sharpen it for them. That's what they had to do with their farm implements. Again, so it was so bad that on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people. Terrible odds terrible situation. It actually reminded me of a quote from the movie adaptation of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. In that movie, in that novel, there is a brave dwarf named Gimli. And Gimli gathers with the other members of the Fellowship of the Ring and they make a plan to attack the enemy. Only they make that plan knowing that they're massively outnumbered They face overwhelming odds. And despite this, Gimli, the dwarf, is ready to fight. And he encourages his comrades by saying, certainty of death, small chance of success, what are we waiting for? But that's not the attitude the Israelites had. They don't have that mindset. Now, a few chapters from this one. We will come across a hero from the tribe of Judah, from the nation of Israel, who shares Gimli's mindset. He's the one who says to his enemy, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. But that's not this story. That will come later, Lord willing. In this story, we have the people of God coming to terms with and demonstrating in their actions that they are incapable of flourishing without God's help. And I think we would do well this morning as we think about applying this text to our lives, to consider our own beliefs on our own ability to flourish 
in life independent of divine health. As citizens who live in a first world country, I think we often deceive ourselves into thinking that we are capable, in fact, more than capable of ensuring our own flourishing. We believe that we can do it on our own. Let me tell you, in my relatively short pastorate, I've already seen many times over how the trials and tribulations of life shock and awe people out of the delusion that they are capable of flourishing without help. Those who have heard the words, you have cancer, do not pretend that they are able to flourish by themselves. Parents who hear the word, your child has been in an accident, or your child has committed suicide or attempted suicide, they don't put a ton of faith in their own capabilities. They look for help. But let's suppose, let's suppose a person was able to avoid all the vile blows and buffets of the world, and they were able to do that their whole life, And they were able to truly convince themselves of their ability to succeed and their whole life lived independent of divine help. I don't think it happens, but let's say it did. That individual would nevertheless face the same reckoning that every human being will face when they die. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And Paul writes of that judgment in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, saying, On that day, God judges the secrets of men. And the Apostle John wrote about that day in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, writing, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Make no mistake this morning. Every human being ultimately is incapable of flourishing without divine help. If not in this world, then certainly in the world to come. Now, I'll speak more about that momentarily, but it is sufficient for now to apply the text this morning by acknowledging and admitting that we are incapable in and of ourselves. We'll make that connection by considering that Israel is incapable. Along those same lines, we see in this passage that Saul was inadequate. That's my second point. Saul is inadequate. I think the core of this passage is verses 8 through 14, where we see the inadequacy of Saul in his disobedience to divine directives. Now, in these verses, Saul is waiting for Samuel 
to offer a sacrifice before going into battle. Now, many commentators understand that he was commanded to wait for Samuel. And many of the commentators actually think we've already encountered that command. In 1 Samuel 10, 7 through 8, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Samuel's talking to Saul. And he's talking about how he's going to become king and what's going to happen. And he says, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, maybe it was that time, maybe it was another time. What we need to understand from the text is that Saul should have known better than to act preemptively. The text is clear on that. Whether that instruction was the one given in chapter 10 or one that's not recorded, Saul, in not waiting for Samuel, was knowingly being disobedient. Put yourself in in Saul's shoes for a minute. He's, He's waiting anxiously. His people are deserting him. His fighters are bailing on him. The fighters he does have, you know, have sticks and stones. They don't have spears. They don't have swords. A massive army is forming against him. And Samuel is delayed. And so he waits for seven days. But I think according to the text, on the seventh day, before it was over, Saul decides to do the sacrifices himself. And that was contrary to God's command. Now, I don't think the issue is that he, he performed sacrifices. Now, that is a priest's job, but there's precedent in Scripture for people who aren't priests to do something like that. I think where he erred grievously was he was told to wait for Samuel, and he didn't wait. And in fact, as he finishes his sacrifices, on the seventh day, the day that Samuel said he would come, Samuel actually arrives. And now we start to see the inadequacy of Saul. First we see it with Samuel's question to Saul. You see, Samuel's question to Saul is eerily similar to God's question for Eve after she sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. God's question, Samuel's question to Saul is eerily similar to God's question to Cain after he killed his brother. Saul says very simply, What have you done? His inadequacy is further indicated by his reply to that question. He replies similar to the way Adam replied after Adam and Eve sinned against God and God confronted them. Instead of owning his sin, in Adam-like fashion, Saul starts deflecting the blame. He blames the people. He blames Samuel. Listen to his words. When I saw the people were scattering from me, in brackets, it was their fault, and that you did not come within the days appointed, in brackets, it's your fault, Samuel, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So this glaringly misguided course of action 
And this lame attempt at blaming others reveals that Saul is inadequate. And Samuel rebukes him soundly. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Clearly, if God's people are to flourish, Saul cannot be their king. Saul, through his disobedience, has exposed himself as a fool. He's lost the future of his family's reign. And in the plan of God, he is replaced by another man after God's own heart. Now, we considered earlier that Israel could not flourish without help, they were incapable. And now we see that the help of a disobedient king is inadequate. When we considered Israel, we evaluated our own capabilities for whole life flourishing and realized, I think if we're honest, that we are found wanting. And so what hope is there? Well, there's hope for us. And the Christmas season reveals that hope. The Christmas story is the story of a divine king who comes and that king is adequate. That king came to save us that we might flourish under his reign. The birth of Jesus was the birth of a king. The wise men knew this well. We read in Matthew chapter two, verse one and two, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The birth of Jesus was the birth of a king. But this is a king who would not reveal inadequacy through disobedience, but rather reveal his own adequacy through his obedience. Jesus, as an adult, declared about his relationship with God the Father that I always do the things that are pleasing to him, John 8, 29. He was an obedient king. And that obedience led to the flourishing of his people. This is described in Romans chapter five, verse 19, where we read, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is further clarified in Philippians chapter two, verse five through eight, where we see how Christ was obedient. And his obedience is the mechanism of our flourishing. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
It was the obedience of King Jesus that took him to the cross wherein we find our flourishing. What does that flourishing look like? It looks like a lot of things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says the death of Jesus on the cross brings us into the power of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 16, it's the death of Jesus on the cross by which we are reconciled to our heavenly Father. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it was the death of Jesus on the cross and his obedience that took him there that gives us peace. Some of you may be wondering why I haven't switched to a topical sermon series on Christmas. I don't think there's a better book in the Bible to demonstrate to us our need for an adequate king to come and save us than 1 Samuel. That's what this book is about. And the coming of the adequate king, the king who would be obedient to God the Father, obedient to the point of death on a cross. That is where our flourishing is found. That's wherein we enter into the power of God. That's how we are reconciled to God the Father. That is how and the means by which God gives us peace. Our passage has demonstrated that Israel is incapable And Saul is inadequate. It also shows us that God is in charge. My last point, God is in charge. I arrive at this point by combining those verses from chapter 12 that said if we will obey and and you will be faithful and your king is faithful, it will be well. But if not, the Lord will be against you. Well, in today's passage, it is not well with Israel. It is not well with Israel's king. Israel has not feared the Lord. They've not been obedient. And certainly their king has not been either. And so Israel is incapable and Saul is inadequate and God is in charge. Because when he sees this, he makes his judgment. Saul, you've lost the kingdom. Saul, Your children, your grandchildren will not be kings. I'm gonna replace you because you have not been faithful. And that's why I say the main idea from this passage is since we are incapable of and inadequate for independent flourishing, we ought to trust and obey God. 1 Samuel 13 exposes that we are incapable if we're honest with ourselves. 1 Samuel 13 exposes that we are inadequate, as is any other human king, but the coming of King Jesus changes things. And so we ought to trust and obey God. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, trusting and obeying God for you means repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus. It means believing in who he is and what he has done and trusting in those things for the salvation of your soul. And I encourage you to do that and I'd be happy to talk about that with you this morning. And for the believer, trusting and obeying God means heeding the words of Paul in Galatians chapter six, verse nine, where he writes, let us not grow weary of doing good 
For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. We see both the trusting and obeying in that verse. Let us not grow weary of doing good. That's obedience. That's what we're called to. But we trust. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Are we incapable? Yes. Are we inadequate? Yes. But God has been gracious. He's been gracious to us in sending us a king, his son. And that son was an adequate king. And he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And in that cross and through his work, we can flourish. And God is gracious in giving us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables and empowers us to be faithful, to be obedient. And because of these graces, we pursue obedience and faithfulness. We don't grow weary of doing good. We trust and obey God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would help us to apply it. I pray, Father God, that your spirit would help each one of us to see that we are incapable of flourishing without help. That we are inadequate to flourish without help. And I pray your spirit would help us to look to Jesus, the one who is adequate the one who was obedient, the one who died on a cross that his people might flourish. And I pray for each one here that you by your spirit would help us to trust and obey. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.